this is not about an issue of Latinx empowerment. This is an issue of the empowerment of all people of color, uh, black and brown, indigenous. That's the world that would be best for us because then you really have a world where racial inequality and racial, you know, is not an issue and that nobody is in, out of the conversation because of their background or race. This is Studio Confessions, the art podcast. I am your host, Luis Martin, the art engineer. Listen in for conversations with artists and culture makers as we talk about their creative practice and what moves them. Let me share my wax poetic monologues and have activate your creativity to live an inspired and more beautiful life. That's right, I said beautiful. Welcome to the studio. I'm glad you're here. Hey, Arlene, how are you? Um, I'm great. Great to talk to you. I'm so happy to connect with you. And you're here in New York. That's right. I'm downtown. So I saw that you wrote a book. It's called Latinx Art, Artists, Markets, and Politics. And I was like, oh, I have to read this. I need this. And I read the introduction and you said something that just caught me. You said, I'm writing this book as an outsider. And I thought, wow, that gives you so much leverage, so much power. Can you tell me a little bit about what drove you to write this book? Absolutely. Um, well, I, uh, as an outsider, I, I meant that, uh, you may know, I'm a professor, tenured, full professor. So uh, some of us work in academia, have uh, something called tenured, and that means job security, which means we can say pretty much anything. Fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> right? Scholarship. Um, and I have been kind of um, a participant uh, in the kind of Latinx art world in New York City. A zillion years ago, I started my career at an institution that no longer exists, but it was very important for our community called the Museum of Contemporary Hispanic Art, mm. uh, which was the first um, museum really focusing on uh, contemporary Latinx art, which back then the word was Hispanic. But um, but all, and I also work at Museo del Barrio briefly. So I've always had like a one foot in the kind of art world, but really my career has been in, in academia. And from this perspective, I have been able to observe changes in, in the art world and how it treats an, um, Latinx artist, uh, Puerto Rican artist. And I've always been concerned. Um, so these are, when the opportunity presented, um, more than the opportunity, like the past couple of years, you may have seen that there's kind of a resurgence. You know, what I talk about is a Latinx artivist movement um, where more artists, curators began to kind of organize around the call for representation. I felt that uh, I was a participant in that kind of conversation, but I felt that I had a particular role to play. Uh, particularly because I was not an insider in that my I don't depend my livelihood does not depend on making a living in the art world. Sure. What do you teach at NYU? I teach at NYU. I'm in the anthropology and American studies, but that's another conversation about how you thread both disciplinary and interdisciplinary boundaries. But I don't have to depend on geeks or curator, uh, curatorial, curatorial um, which are, as you know, very uh, unstable type of works, right? Artists oftentimes feel like they can say some things because if not, they're not going to get... There's just kind of polite silence. In doing this book, did you was it easy for you in just going back in your experiences or did you feel you had to kind of take the pulse of where things are right now? Um, 
I, I was inspired in this Latinx activist movement that I described. Colleagues of mine, friends of mine were organizing. You may have heard about the U.S. Latinx Art Forum, uh, where art historians organized because there was no Latinx art in the College Art Association. So there are colleagues, friends that I've known. So I, I was part of those meetings. Uh, then there is a very important U.S. Latinx Art Futures uh, Symposium organized at the Ford Foundation by Teresita um, Fernandez, which was so important. Uh, this was back in 2016, I believe, or 17. And it was so important because it, what, what she did was bring this conversation to the national level, um, inviting artists from the West Coast, from all over the United States to discuss things. And I talked about this in the book, I think, in the acknowledgments about how, to me, it was eye-opening to, to see that a lot of the issues that I have from artists in New York City were echoed and repeated by artists all over the United States that were part of that symposium. So that was kind of like my aha moment that, oh, well, I have to write this book because, as I said, and particularly at that meeting, I was one of the speakers and I realized that I was the only person talking about issues of the market, which seemed to be like kind of the elephant in the room. Big time, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that kind of guides so much of the conversation, but it's never really talked about openly. Now, you, wrote, you started writing this book, things have, the panorama has changed. What do you think are some of the takeaways that are in your book that can prepare us for what's happening post-COVID? Because we really do have an opportunity to kind of create a new paradigm, right? And what does that look like? Absolutely. I, I think that it's the issues of, um, that, that we're seeing more and more is greater awareness to the fact that issues of, that the contemporary art world is a space for where issues of equity and social justice uh, need to be discussed and played out. It's an important forum. It's an important space. It's not an apolitical space. Um, and especially, particularly issues of disability and representation in the art world, in cultural economies, in cultural industries. Um, the issues that I discuss in relationship to the contemporary art world are so akin to the battles of representation in journalism, in museums right, right. at large, in academia, in the film industry, in the publishing industry, right? So this is kind of an issue where more than ever we're seeing culture matters, uh, visibility matters, and this is not only an issue of empowerment, but there are also issues of uh, cultural equity around economic empowerment, because um, we have to realize that the cultural industries are so, such important industries. There are so many millions of dollars that are being circulated in these industries where people have, we're talking about people's jobs, right? The value of people's works. Um, there's so many levels that it's not only a matter of visibility and representation, but it's also a matter of equity, um, social justice, and general empowerment um, to address issues of racism in the arts. Yeah, I mean, on a very superficial level, I think contemporary art also really sets the, the visual trend, right, for fashion, for magazines, for these little conversations that happen. And it really worries me. So I'm a collage artist. I subscribe to 100 magazines, one of them being Town and Country, which is, you know, like the most... <laughs> you know, White Lily magazine you can subscribe, but the cover and everything in it right now is African-American faces. And I'm thinking, this this feels wrong, right? Because there's no bridge. It's kind of just like, okay, let's slap this. Let's let's get this going. Let's, let's get the look. Um, how do you think we can build authentic 
bridges, these, these, these real relationships where it isn't just beholden on uh, the conversations that look good, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, this is where issues of the economy are so important. Um, which are kinds of the issues that as an anthropologist, right, I've always been very interested, not only in this book, but I've kind of been around the block, you know, in looking at Hispanic marketing or urban studies, other spaces where you have battles of representation. And the kind of questions I ask is, let's go beyond the look, right? Uh, let's go beyond what I've called elsewhere, the kind of Latino spin, right? The kind of like the look off or... Um, that has historically been used to kind of whitewash so many projects. That's another conversation. But but this notion that, you know, it's, it's not enough to appear, right? We're in a moment of real, real accountability. And we have to really have conversations about who is producing those representations, who benefits from those representations, who's involved in those circulations, right? Um, and, and basically, who's, who's profiting ultimately from those, right? And then that's kind of the key element because, and, and that requires structural transformation in our industries because otherwise you're going to have this kind of like color of the month emergency of right. diversity. And that's what it is, right? Fact, though, where you're going to see like all of a sudden, oh, well, now we have to have more uh, name, you know. No, we, we need to really transform this industry so that so that they look like the real demographics of the United States, so that they look like the real demographics of cities like New York City. That's really, right, that structural conversation of real change that is his, that is lasting, that it is not color of the month, but that is continuous and that is able to produce diverse representations, not kind of like emergency representations, like, but that rather that you see real diverse, because as you know, Latinx populations, hello, you know, it's not a race, it's an ethnicity, it's a conglomerate, it's an ethnic group, so you need to have, you know, our black Latinx people, you have to have our indigenous Latinx people, you need to have, you know, um, disabled folk, you need to have older, you know, all kinds of things that right now we don't have, uh, and we are unable to produce when we have this kind of emergency, oh, well, we need to have an author now, we need to have a Latino um, writer now. And uh, That seems like a lot of work. <laughs> well, that's why you need to change these industries to ensure that their makeup of their staff, right, it's totally, um, I mean, right now there's a whole debate, I'm sure you've been following, um, around the Los Angeles Times, and now we basically said, hey, there's no writers, this is Los Angeles is a city that's Latino, and they, there's really no writers, very few. How do you change in you know, New York City, New York Times, does not even go there, but, or the, or the New Yorker, you know, this kind of like foundational magazines and foundational, I'm referring back here to the recent editorial by Elizabeth uh, mendez Benry. um, uh, Monica Ramirez about these kinds of issues of lack of representation that go back to, uh, I don't, but but that they go back to who's been hired in our journalist uh, and writer and publishing. But you know, in academia, you know, I'm I'm so one of the few Puerto Rican uh, academics, but also how many Latinx um, scholars or so many departments at NYU and elsewhere that do not have any Black faculty, don't have Latinx faculty, so. Anyways, I could ramble forever, but it goes back to, it's not a lot of work, Luis, if you actually, if you have industries and institutions that look the way they should in the makeup of their staffs. Well, right? what, what I'm wondering is, it, there's so much work to be done that I'm wondering, should we just start from scratch, right? Should we, should Latinos start their own 
papers, their own media companies, and do they have that agency and equity to do that? Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, if we go back to the to the context of the art world, which which uh, you know, I talk about in, in the Latinx art book, that's one issue that kind of runs through is the need for Latinx artists to become more empowered. Um, and I, I bring examples when that has happened and the importance of, because you're right, it's not like there's a, a lot of curators out there that know about our artists. Um, there's also not a lot of institutions that are attuned and that have the knowledge to know where to find us because there is that historical gap. So how do you begin to change when there's so much work to do, going back to your question? Um, and I think it's so important that artists realize the importance of, uh, of empowering themselves, of organizing around collectives or showing each other's work. I think social media has done a lot of great job that way too, right? Yeah. In a lot of people are not waiting for artists to know about their work, but they're actually self-promoting themselves and also self-promoting other artists. I, I talk about many examples of collaborations between, between artists that I think are great, especially when you don't have curators, enough curators out there. A lot of artists are functioning as curators, as dealers, as representatives. Yeah, absolutely. You've seen that, right? Well, going back to what you were saying that, you know, there's this elephant in the room and everyone's very hush-hush about the obvious problems. It's like if you're an artist trained academically, how do you empower yourself when you're trained to not talk about these issues, right? So I've come across so many uh, self-taught artists and they're doing so well because they were not... Uh, trained to have these mores or these limitations that we kind of self-impose, right? Which is, again, why I'm so excited to speak to you because, like you said, you're an outsider. You have a totally different lens as an anthropologist. How did that help you to, to frame it from a point of view of an anthropologist? Uh, well, I, I, I think um, I talk about this kind of taboos of how you create value in the art world, this idea. I mean, I have as an anthropologist and who has written about issues of value uh, as a culturally constructed thing that is not something that is, that is not sacred, unlike what art historians would tell you. Um, I have always come from that perspective, right? So I, I don't buy into this idea that there is such a thing as quality and merit that is just out there. That is, And, and I think that I come from that perspective that kind of challenges against the kind of Kool-Aid, if you will, right? That, that a lot of these institutions are so Eurocentric at the core, and a lot of the foundations of the thinking, particularly this idea right, that there is a distinction between the economic realm and the cultural realm, and that you cannot mess them up, that they're antagonistic. Mm. Forget that more and more elites and collectors and money shape the conversation around aesthetic value. Not only today, but always, right? So I think it's important to demystify a lot of the Kool-Aids that are taught, that have to do with the Eurocentric understandings of value uh, and art, that are that are also very racially imbued, because you know they are they are meant, right? If you think about that notion of like the antagonistic notion of value between culture and the economics. It's meant to like not highlight that the people that are very wealthy will always make do better, but we can talk about that, right? Because it is the distinction. So, so all those, all those 
I actually make, um, and I don't know if this makes any sense in the book, I explain it much better, but I, I make a comparison between this taboo against talking about the market with the taboo against talking about how racism impacts the conversation of value. Mm. And I, I argue that both of them work in tandem, right? So nobody's supposed to talk about how much racism impacts the fact that it's white artists that have historically done better, just like the conversation around economics and culture doesn't allow us to highlight how much the economics, right, and the muscle of elite and patronage have also impacted the conversation of value. As a result, value is a constructed quality that is also very imbued, and we need to be very savvy and not buy into those Kool-Aids and and, and, and always fight against those ideas, right? Um, Absolutely. I remember right before covid hit uh it was art week and i went to all these art fairs and you know i was i I got updates on my phone oh you know they're closing this they're closing the airports whatever but you know these paintings were going for thirty four thousand dollars a pop and it's this you know and in my head i'm like oh my god the world is ending and this made-up economy it's made up like it means not like this is literally just a piece of fabric on the wall and we're making it up right so again how do we get our, our, our community to, to, to also partake in this made-up value, right? Because we, I think it's really hard for people to kind of uh, give it that value. So one, one thing that I've noticed a lot is, like, you'll, you'll, you'll find uh, leather goods, per se, and you find it in Mexico for, you know, $30. And you're like, oh, can I get it for 25 but you get a leather good here in New York or in the U.S., and it's $300, and that's acceptable because it's made by a white hand, right? It's not, it's, it wasn't made indigenously or whatever. So it, it's this idea that, that we really do buy into. We, like you said, we drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I think there's a big conversation right now going around artists getting more empowerment about selling their work, for instance, right? Uh, ensuring that they uh, have control over the resale value. The issue of resale royalties is so important. Mm. It is not acceptable that we live in an economy whereby it's only collectors who benefit from any value of the work because once an artist sells the work, they don't have any ability to control and benefit from any kind of evaluation of that work. Sure. So you get those, 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 you mentioned the example of the $30,000 painting. Who knows what the artist was paid? Rest mm. assured that the artist is not getting any of whatever money is uh, accrued on that work. Only the collectors are the people that sell that work. Right. So there's a conversation right now where these issues are coming out more and more. Uh, look what happened now with the Whitney uh, exhibition, right? <laughs> the one that, ne- that didn't happen? <laughs> that exhibition, you know, where a lot of the work was, you know, obtained, you know, very cheaply. And artists are like, hey, hey, that's not fair. We, mm. <laughs> this is... So we have to also be very critical, and I'm also a little uh, critical about the fundraising, all of this fundraising model where artists, right, are not benefiting from their work. Um, So all those conversations are way overdue, and it goes back to how do we change the art economy to ensure not only that more of us get involved, selling our work, becoming uh, Latinx dealers, Latinx galleries, also selling our own work, but also developing new ways of, right, of doing businesses um, and of running things to ensure that 
our artists and the community um, benefits, that there's not this kind of spe speculation, that it doesn't further the speculation that is marginalizing um, artists. Yeah, I think it's very important. It's also, I think it's, it's such a weird time to have these conversations because there's so many other pressing matters that you're like well why am i talking about this because like the world like i said this world is then let me talk about this but then artists are literally starving you know but exactly. uh it's, it's it's crazy yeah it's really nuts and 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 i think um ultimately you know with my own humble thing what i hope this book does is that it gets conversations like that with the hope that we could have more of our creative uh, creative workers, right? Artists who are creative workers. Yeah. Not only yeah. the artists who produce the work and their brilliance recognized for their brilliance, but also their, their labor, their work, um, their rights yeah. as, as members of a larger creative, creative class, right? There's so many, you know, we tend to think of like this, I know, very narrow, narrow idea of a contemporary artist who works in their studio and makes a living out of their, you know, their, their works. Very few artists actually make a living that way. Correct. Most artists, as you know, have other jobs, part-time, multiple gigs. So issues of, whenever you raise issues of empowerment, equity, um, uh, rights around healthcare, education, anything that has to do with equity helps not only the general economy, but helps our artists because our most artists and creative class are also people, are humans, are workers. They're doing a lot of other things. So it's important to know to challenge this idea of like, oh well, this book is about artists and you know it's like high high class, high end. No, because most of us, uh, at least many of the artists I work with, were having all kinds of jobs to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Are you an artist but can use a guide, a cheerleader, and a coach? I'm excited to announce that I'm now officially coaching artists. Let's work together on a project-based, result-driven outline to get you into a state of prolific flow. Because artists like us don't seek validation. We create our own opportunities to shine. Go to prolificflow.com and drop me a line. Now is our time. Let's work together. The Latinx experience is a very, uh, it, it, we're united here in the U.S. and that would, that's what makes it Latinx, correct? That, that we're all coming here and having this experience. Um, I also question, you know, we all want to be here because it's New York, because here's where the money is. But in thinking about the elections and thinking about the current environment, I'm thinking, where the heck am I going to go if, if he wins? I, you know, like I'm thinking, I have a few layers of protection. Right. You mentioned the creative class as creatives. You go into different countries or different territories. You're, you're viewed completely different. I would even go as far as saying you're respected in a way because you have a point of view. You have a practice. You have a dialogue you want to um, you, you can participate in. Right. That doesn't necessarily exist here. Do you think the, the art conversation here is only market driven? Um. We've got to change that, right? We've got to challenge that. Um, I, I like to think that a lot of the Latinx artists that are that I've met, that are you know that I see in Instagram, that are exhibiting, that I interviewed for the book, are many of them are activists. Many of them are like working in communities, and they're 
developing new narratives of how the world should be that are empowering, that are challenging. Amazing. Racism, opening up ideas of citizenship, and you know that is that are broader about humanity. And um, I think that what's I wrote the book ultimately because you know I always say my I always tell myself that I like artists more than oftentimes I can appreciate artwork. Absolutely. Because, you know, I mean, like I'm I'm like I'm not an you know I was um, not visually trained uh, as a kind of a, like art historian would look at, at a piece or not. Let's not fetishize art historians, but. I, I, my appreciation of artists is not only about their work, but it's also about the incredible worldviews. And I don't want to also fetishize artists as being always like, you know, like that's another conversation going on, right? Artists, <laughs> you know, like have this extra sense, like no. But those that inspire me too. Um, and that's what we like to learn, right, um, from many of them. So I like to think that no, um, the problem is that we do live in a, in a huge neoliberal city that is ruled by elites and millionaires and has really diminished the conversation about what's valuable and how who can run a business in the city, who can even live in the city. Um, so we have to change that conversation and hopefully, hopefully that, that could be one of the opportunities of this COVID post-world is that we live in a world where all of us are um, where notions of equity and opportunity are are really at the forefront of any conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's all coming together, really weirdly, but it's all coming together. Can you talk to me a little bit about your writing practice? How how did that start? I, I don't have a writing practice uh-huh. at all. Um, I like to think of myself as a kind of binge writer. <laughs> Like I would not, um, you know, like like I do with sweets or anything, you know, like ice cream, you know, the idea that like um, sometimes you have nothing to say, you know, like I, I sometimes read these ideas of people that wake up in the morning and read and write every day. And like, I'm like, why? Who does that? <laughs> I, I write when I have something to say. And, and when I do, when I'm getting very inspired, I get totally obsessed and I'm like, I go into that zone. And then I will write something really fast, really quickly and furiously. But then I won't write for a month, for two months, for three months, for four months, whatever. Um, so in my in my experience, I've written books really quickly, you know, in terms of the research to the book. But within that, there there is always um, the actual writing is more shorter and furious. I would like to say it's like boom, you know. But I'm not a disciplined writer, and I think um, people need to find what works. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's also different when you're writing from an academic point of view, right? Uh, to some extent, you kind of have a, a an audience that, that's that's looking for your voice. Uh, opposed to just being a creative writer who's writing a novel and needs to find that audience. I am so not a creative writer. I am like, I have no idea how people come up with stories like that. I draw stories from what people tell me. Like, this is like, I'm just, you know, like a, a document. Mm. And then I analyze a little bit and I try to, um, I pride myself in not being jargony. So anybody who hasn't looked at the book, I promise you, is you know, I, I'm very clear. I don't think uh, academic writing should be on it inaccessible. Mm. So I try to be very accessible because I'm writing not only for academic audiences, I couldn't care less. I'm writing for my larger communities and uh, for people who are interested in matters of equity, in the museum world, in the art world at large. And, and ultimately, I'm writing to, as, 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 to address issues of visibility. I hope that people 
whether they like the book or hate the book or use Latinx or don't use Latinx or whatever it is, I hope the book provides a, a, a space of conversation, right? That somebody else can continue uh, as opposed to like, oh, who are Latinos? What Latinx art? Like, I hope that the book helps further that conversation a little bit so that more conversations can open up, right? Um, and that that's kind of like the, the, what we author, at least from my perspective, what I try to do with books. I don't claim to have ever the definite, I'm the definite source on this topic. Fantastic. I'm yeah. hoping that the book helps a lot of people who are trying to carve space for appreciating Latinx art in its complexity. I'm hoping the book will help those further the conversation, right? Um, that's, that would be, I would be very happy that if the book helps. Can you, helps. can you tell me, uh, an experience perhaps when you first started your career that really kind of, uh, moved you as far as experiencing art and, and meeting artists? What was that like? Um, God, I guess so many, right? But I think like the first, first, first would be, um, when I was, um, I grew up in Puerto Rico, um, and um, in, in a countryside. So there, the, the first of it, it was artisans, right? Mm -hmm. Artesanos, right? Which we tend to like not appreciate, but fascinating to see actually, by the way, when you interview a lot of our contemporary artists, it's very interesting how many of them will say that they don't have any artist in their family, but then you carve a little bit more and they'll say, oh, well, my tia was a seamstress. Wow, right. Or, mother was you know did such and such or you know you know that right in our community a lot of that other you know like handicrafts or artisans or sewing or uh you know so so i i, I think that that also is art right how could not be so to me in puerto rico um having access to artesanos you know uh, wood carvers that kind of you know um that was perhaps you know my first and did you have any artesanos in your family no, not at all. My mom is a good example. You know, she was into, you know, uh, sewing. She did macrame. She did knitting. She did, she even painted. My goodness, you know. Um, all, you know, of all kinds of things, you know. Um, that's not only, I, I don't have any of that art, you know, artisan, artisanal perspective, but a huge appreciation. And it's interesting now to see how many contemporary artists are also drawing on. Yeah, right? craft, yeah, absolutely. That's always been, and I love to see so many artists that are doing and are drawing from, and that are, you know, embroidering their work and, and so forth. Let me ask you, do you consider yourself an activist? Um, absolutely. Why would I be in academia otherwise? Oh. I think <laughs> I think, Luis, that most uh, ethnic studies scholars and Latinx studies scholars are by default activists because there's no other way to be in academia otherwise and do this work if you did not have a, a footing, you know, an appreciation on larger social struggles for justice and equity that we fight, you know, in, in academia every day. And how do you... Um how do you cope with that? I know a lot of people who are in your position and I've heard stories and I know it's not easy. How do you have the strength to write a book about it and, uh, and not let it be doom and gloom? Well, I, I think, and you know, I have to say many of the, many of the Latinx scholars that I have spoken feel this way, which is because academia is such a hostile and white-centered space, 
a lot of us channel a lot of our uh, writings, you know, our, our writing becomes, um, it, it fuels our research, it fuels our intellectual agenda, um, because otherwise you couldn't survive in these spaces. So it's, I'm not, I'm not rare, I, I, I would generalize that most of my colleagues that work in ethnic studies are, are doing the same. Um, they, 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 they use a lot of their, their angst, um, they, they channel it to their research or to their mentorship of students, right? Or to opening up spaces in academia by teaching courses. Um, that kind of is the most rewarding element because when you see the difference we can make in the classroom and in these white spaces, teaching a class on Latinx studies, teaching a class on these topics, it, it matters. Yeah. And, and that's a big, that, that's the huge source of inspiration. I love that you point that out, that how could you not, right? There's that meme that's going around that says, if you're not angry right now, you're not paying attention, right? And I feel that uh, this kind of experience that you're describing in your book and academia kind of translates in all Latino endeavors, right? Anything that people want to do, you're always going to be faced by this opposition. So in some way, you either, uh, I don't know, assimilate, you become an activist, and you find a way to do it, right? Absolutely. And I think all of us can do something, you know. Oftentimes people think, you know, activist has this kind of like big word and narrowed understanding. But it's this really appreciation that we're all working together and we're all doing a little bit, right? And how do we respect or and uplift each other's voices? Yeah, and yeah. That's really important too, to work to, to really have alliances and you know so i appreciate your invitation today. oh uh, thank you for chatting with me and i mean and before i let you go uh take me to a happy place so let's say 10 years from now the world has read this and has taken their cues what does that look like what does the space look like a good space where we have equity in your eyes post i mean 10 years after latinx art the book um wow well you would have um you would have, people will read the book and will say, oh my God, that book is so passe. <laughs> right? I'm like, oh my God, that's how, like, none of that applies today. Wow. Imagine that, right? That would be a dream that people read that book and they'll be like, oh my God, that's, you know, they, they would not think it's relevant because the conversation is so advanced um, that our artists are everywhere and are part of every exhibition and you wouldn't even need a label like Latinx art maybe because we are all over and we are right um, represented everywhere not, and not only and the other key element is that this is not about an issue of Latinx empowerment this is an issue of the empowerment of all people of color right uh, black and brown indigenous that's the world where we Latinx people will benefit you know, will, that would be best for us. Because then you really have a world, right, where racial inequality and racial, you know, is not an issue and that nobody is being left out of the conversation because of their background or race. So that's kind of what it looks like. I love that. You win, I win. That's brilliant. Arlene, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I know you're very busy. Congratulations on your book. And I look forward to look, talking to you 10 years from now and, yeah, having it be so passe. How about you, Luis? Sorry to turn the combo to you. 10 years from now, how about you? Ooh. What does the world look like? What would Luis be doing 10 years from now? Oh, goodness. So, secretly, I'd have an artist compound. And my dream is to give residencies to artists, you know, like a huge stipend, live, create collaborate um, 
because it, it, it just yeah. i hope that there's a more uh dynamic way where it doesn't have to be like charity because i'm so against charity you know i i really hope there's a way that we can kind of figure out how not to do that but i feel like right now as things are i would really want to create a program where people where artists don't have to struggle in here you know because how I'm always questioning New York as, as the center of the art world, right? How the heck are artists supposed to create amazing work when they're under so much pressure, right? I think everyone took a sigh of relief when they're like, what, I can't leave my house for a month? Okay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that, that's my dream. Yeah, well, I would love to help you with that. It's, it's a fabulous dream, so let's, let's plan ahead. Let's do it early. Yes. Well, here's to here's to us, and you have a great day. Thank you so much. Want to share your thoughts on the conversation? Reach out on Instagram at StuCon Podcast, or visit the website StudioConfessions.com. Follow me and check out my work at Art Engineer. Please leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on. It goes a long way. Thanks for listening. If you heard anything that moved you, please share it. You are the spark that can ignite a thousand flames. I am Luis Martin, the art engineer, sharing with you what moves me. Thank you.